God's inerrant, infallible Word, our Holy Bible, stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world. This worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the Bible stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of Scripture for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here is our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Turn up your radio and give me your undivided attention for the next 15 minutes. I have a most important message from God's Holy Word. Today I'd like to bring you the first message of a rather lengthy series that I call The Science of Creation. I think this study is of vital importance to those who believe in the verbal inspiration and the infallibility of God's Word, yet who have been confused by the recent controversy between so-called evolutionary science and biblical creationism. Is evolution the scientific approach to the study of origins, and is creationism the religious approach? The answer to both of these questions is no. Actually the reverse is true. We'll show this in the coming days as we continue our study on the science of creation. Let's open this first message of the series by reading Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The prophet Isaiah penned these words as he was moved by the Holy Spirit of God approximately 2,700 years ago. Isaiah's statement is just as true today as it was when he wrote it. This truth needs to be re-emphasized because the great doctrine of the full and verbal inspiration of the Bible is one of the major issues of modern times. Satan has launched a full-scale campaign against belief in the inspiration and inerrancy of Holy Scripture, and his attack has caused many thousands to turn from the truth of God's Word to the lies of this world's rationalism. The 66 books of our Old and New Testaments claim within themselves to be the very Word of God. It's been found by millions who take God at His Word and believe on Jesus Christ as their personal Savior that these internal claims of the Bible are fully supported by ample external evidence. In order for anyone to be Christian, according to the biblical definition, then that person must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in so believing he has life through his name, according to John chapter 20 and verse 31. Now if we do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then we are obligated to believe everything that he said. Our New Testament, the written record that tells us of our Lord's life and work, contains many statements of his that absolutely confirm the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ referred to the exact same 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today, no more and no less, when in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, the Jewish designation of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, or the prophets, the Jewish designation for the other 34 books of the Old Testament. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, the smallest, least significant marks in the written Hebrew language, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The law most definitely includes the book of Genesis. Christians of today are frequently confronted with the so-called scientific errors in the Bible. The world directs this charge especially toward the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Because of the tremendous impact on the philosophy of our day of what's often called scientific rationalism, a great majority of the world's population is convinced that belief in a literal creation and a universal flood as described in the Genesis account represents wholesale scientific ignorance. If I've told you of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The Lord asked Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 12. Countless thousands have turned their backs on the Son of God because Satan, through his master plan of scientific rationalism, has convinced them that God's written word is not reliable when it speaks of earthly things. Why then should it be reliable when it speaks of heavenly things, salvation, heaven, hell, or eternal life? In this study, 
We'll examine the Genesis account in the light of modern true science. In so doing, we'll see that it is the only scientifically acceptable account of the origin and the present condition of our world. Even in the light of today's science, as Isaiah has said, the Bible stands. Let me read Psalm 119, verses 89 through 91. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. These words remind us of the unchangeableness of God's word. They also remind us that all of the writers of sacred scripture assert the truth that is revealed in the opening chapters of Genesis. That truth is God created the heavens and the earth by divine fiat and the heavens and the earth continue to operate this day according to God's ordinances. We call God's ordinances, those laws established by him to sustain his creation, the natural law. The law established by God after creation for the purpose of sustaining his creation is what scientists today can observe and study by the scientific method. This point should be emphasized. Scripture consistently tells us that the ordinances that today determine natural processes are laws of conservation, not laws of creation. God used creative laws to bring the universe into existence. Those processes that God used to create the universe are no longer in operation. They have been superseded by laws of preservation. These present ordinances no matter how much we study them, can never tell us anything about creative processes. Science and the scientific method, by definition, deal only with processes and phenomena of the present that are subject to repetition and to experimental observation. True science is always associated with experiment and observation. Anything that is non-repeatable and therefore not subject to experimental observation is beyond the limits of true science. When those who call themselves scientists begin to speculate upon processes and events that are non-repeatable and therefore non-observable, then they have left the field of true science and they have entered the fields of philosophy and religion. Here we have, in a nutshell, the source of the supposed conflict between the revelation of God's word and modern science. The conflict is not between the Bible and true science. There can be no conflict there because God's word is truth and true science deals with observed truth. The conflict is between both the Bible and true science on one side and the pseudo-science of satanic origin which is actually the religion of atheism masquerading under the name of science on the other side. The inspired apostle Paul warns us of this satanic pitfall in his epistle to Timothy chapter 6 verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Failing to heed this warning has opened the door to the satanic deception that has gained such inroads upon the people of the world today. If it's possible to cast doubt upon the absolute accuracy of God's word, then one is able to doubt its absolute authority also. It's an easy step for the rebellious heart of natural man to move from a position in which he doubts the absolute accuracy of some of God's word to a position in which he rejects it altogether. In technical things, as well as in spiritual things, the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Throughout the centuries, men have advanced many theories as to how our universe came into being. Some of these theories have captured the attention of the scientific world for a few years or even a few tens of years. However, not one of these man-generated theories is accepted as a logical explanation today. Why? Because against every theory proposed, a fact has been discovered that proves it wrong. Scientists who look at the situation logically simply say, we must honestly admit that we just don't know how the earth, the other planets, and the rest of the universe came into being. Why have all the speculations and theories of men relating to the origin of our universe turned out to be dead-end streets? It's primarily because men have failed to realize the significance of a basic truth that has come to light in the physical sciences only in our century. 
This truth is the fact that the material world is basically non-material in its ultimate elementary form. That truth was revealed long ago in Scripture, but it has only recently been acknowledged by modern science. Today the physicist knows that the mechanics of the universe can only be understood comprehensively in terms of non-mechanical mathematical concepts. New Testament Scripture written over 1900 years ago made it quite clear that the physical universe was created out of nothing and is basically spiritual in its ultimate essence. A doubter can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 and read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Today the nuclear physicist knows beyond doubt that the most basic stuff of our universe is most definitely not visible to our eyes. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, we have clearly spelled out the modern scientific truth of the equivalence of matter and energy. Also, here in our Bible, we have revealed the ultimate source of the mysterious nuclear binding forces. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 tells us, For by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Hold together. My time is gone for today. We'll explore the concept of Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 further as we consider the testimony of the Adam on our next broadcast of the Science of Creation. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I'm glad you've joined our radio family for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing with our study of the most important subject, the science of creation. The purpose of this series of messages is to determine the basis of the continuing conflict between the Bible and that which purports to be 20th century science. Is evolution the scientific view of beginnings, or is it the religious view? Similarly, is creationism the religious view of the origin of all things, or is it the scientific view? As strange as it may seem to some, evolution is not the scientific view as many today believe. It is the religious view of origins, while creationism is actually the scientific view. The objective of this study is to prove this hypothesis. Let's open today's message by reading Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. A Christian cannot dismiss Genesis chapters 1 to 11 as simply a pre-scientific Hebrew theory of origins because the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, authenticated the creation account as both God's word and historical truth. In Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 and 5, the Lord quoted Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, a part of the creation account, and therefore put his stamp of historical authenticity upon it. The Bible tells us, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It should be pointed out that no man was present during the creation period. This event, being non-repeatable, is beyond the reach of the scientific method. The biblical account of creation must be believed by faith. But this is true of all other theories of origins also. However, faith in the Bible is not a matter of blind, unguided belief. There is no other document dealing with origins that is supported by so much tangible evidence. One of the major sources of such tangible evidence is the modern science of nuclear physics. During the last 50 to 75 years, physicists have uncovered some rather startling truths about the true nature of things that make up this universe. Approximately 1900 years ago, the inspired author of the book of Hebrews made a statement that certainly seemed at variance to the laws of science. At least it was at variance to scientific theories held rigidly even in the first part of the 20th century. The statement is found in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. There we read, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. 
Up until about 60 years ago, physical scientists said that matter or substance is eternal. They felt that this was an observed fact. Matter is eternal. It can neither be created nor destroyed. Physical scientists also believed at that time that energy, light, heat, pressure, sound, and so forth, was in an entirely different realm. They had observed that it, too, was eternal. They said that there was a barrier of nature between the two. Neither matter nor energy could be created or destroyed, and that neither one could be converted into the other. But Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 contains a statement that's in direct contradiction to the so-called scientific law of the eternity of matter. It says, things which are seen, matter, were not made originally of things which do appear. In other words, matter is not made out of matter, says the Bible. In the early part of the 20th century, the scientific world was shaken at its roots by the work of a then obscure young scientist and mathematician. This young man's work led him to the startling conclusion that there was a basic equivalence between matter and energy. He derived a mathematical formula which today is known by most high school students, E equals MC squared. His name also became a household word, Dr. Albert Einstein. The correctness of his predictive equation was proven to the whole world in 1945 when the New Mexico desert witnessed the world's first nuclear explosion. Today, the nuclear scientist knows that these two entities, matter and energy, are simply a fixed total. In fact, mass or matter is just a special form of the more basic entity, energy. But what did the writer of the book of Hebrews say 1900 centuries before Einstein? Things which are seen, mass, are not made of things which do appear. This point bears repeating. Our Bible is scientifically correct with respect to all technical subjects upon which it touches. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 contains a statement that denies the theory of the eternity of matter, a theory considered a natural law by men of science even at the beginning of this century. However, today we know that the so-called scientific law of the eternity of matter is in error. Matter, or mass, is simply a special form of the more basic entity, energy. The secret that allows energy to take on the special form of mass is hidden in the nucleus of the atom. Although we're touching on a technical subject, most people today do have a basic concept of the structure of the atom. It can be pictured as a small solar system consisting of a nucleus that corresponds to our sun around which orbit electrons that correspond to our planets. The nucleus of the atom is made up of certain building blocks, the primary ones of which are called protons and neutrons. These basic building blocks exhibit characteristics of both energy and matter. That is, it could be said that they have a dual nature. If the building blocks are locked together in the nucleus of the atom, then the characteristics of matter are dominant. If the building blocks are free agents, then the characteristics of energy are dominant. But there's a mystery associated with the nucleus of the atom. What causes the proton and neutron building blocks to become and remain locked together? By natural law, so far as scientists can observe, the nuclei of atoms should not exist at all. You see, protons are positive charges of electricity. There's a principle of science called Coulomb's law that says that when electrical charges are brought into close proximity, a force exists between them. If the charges are opposite, they attract one another. If the charges are alike, they repel one another. All atoms, except the hydrogen atom, have two or more protons in the nucleus. When two or more positive charges of electricity are placed in the close confines of the atomic nucleus, a tremendous repulsive force results. This force tends to drive the nucleus apart. By the observed laws of nature, atoms, and therefore matter, should not exist. Matter is basically unstable. Then how does matter exist? The answer is rather startling. Physicists have found that there's another force at work within the nucleus of the atom, and this force holds the atom together in spite of the Coulomb force that works inside. This force has been named the nuclear binding force. It's a mysterious force because it exists nowhere in nature except within the boundaries of the nucleus. It's a totally unnatural force in that it becomes zero at the nuclear boundary. In technical terms, it has no gradient. What is the source of the nuclear binding force? Nuclear scientists don't know. They've named it, they can measure its strength, but beyond that, nothing is known about it. 
Our only source of knowledge about this force is the Bible. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, speaking of Christ, Paul writes, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, hold together. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of the nuclear binding forces. He is literally holding all things together by the word of his power. He is the creator of our universe, and he's the sustainer of our universe. The atomic nucleus testifies to the presence of a supernatural force that does literally hold the entire universe together, and Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says that the source of this force is Jesus Christ. He personally administers the force that actually does hold the entire creation together. Will the Lord Jesus Christ ever withdraw the nuclear binding forces that literally hold this earth and its atmospheric heaven together? Yes, the Bible prophesies that he will. Listen to the Apostle Peter's words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. My time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the science of creation on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Let me once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I look forward each day to this time when we can gather together by radio around the Word of God. I'm speaking today on the subject, The Science of Creation. In this study, we're looking at the technical aspects of biblical creationism and at the atheistic, religious aspects of evolutionary uniformitarianism. In today's and tomorrow's broadcast, I'd like to point out that creation is a scientific fact. Let's open today's message by reading Psalm 102 verses 24 through 27. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and thy years shall have no end. As we begin our study of the science of creation, one tremendously significant point should be emphasized. As far as the laws or processes of the physical universe are concerned, these are today known to be based upon just two broad and powerful principles. These two principles are the two laws of energy exchange. Scientists have named them the first and second laws of thermodynamics. If there is any such thing as a law of science, then these two principles meet that definition. There is no other scientific principle supported more fully and certainly by more experimental evidence than are these two laws. All physical processes, and remember this includes all biological processes, in the universe involve the interplay of just two basic entities energy and entropy. It's a scientific fact that any event or process that occurs in space and time is simply a manifestation of some form of exchange of energy. That is, any particular event or process is basically and fundamentally just a transformation of one or more forms of energy, mechanical, electrical, chemical, light, heat, and so forth, into one or more other forms. Now in these energy exchanges, the total quantity of energy remains unchanged. 
No energy is either created or destroyed. This is the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of energy. This law has been experimentally validated on both the cosmic and the subnuclear scales. It is truly a universal law. And since energy includes everything, even matter or material, in the universe, it is as certain as anything can possibly be scientifically that no creation of anything is now taking place anywhere in the physical universe. But there's more. In any energy exchange process, some of the energy is always transformed into a non-reusable heat energy. This portion becomes unavailable for future energy exchanges. The concept of entropy has been developed to describe mathematically this phenomenon. Entropy is a measure of the unavailability of the energy that is present in a system or a process. The second law of thermodynamics describes the phenomenon of entropy by stating that there is always a tendency for any system to become less organized. Without exception, as time goes on and more and more energy exchanges take place to sustain our universe, the randomness, the disorder, the entropy tends to increase. When isolated from external sources of order or information, that is, energy, any system will eventually run down and die. These laws are basic and unchanging in every system or process in our universe. They are basic in scope, and there is no known exception. However, the laws of thermodynamics were only discovered and validated about a hundred years ago. But if men had been willing to develop their scientific theory on the basis of biblical teaching, it would have been quite obvious all along that all basic physical processes were processes of conservation and decay, exactly as is now formulated by the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Now, of course, the Bible does not state these principles in precise scientific jargon, but the basic truths are quite clearly and quite technically expressed. The principles that are formulated in the two laws of thermodynamics are clearly stated in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Before we consider the scientific statements from God's Word that deal with these principles, it should be pointed out that the English word work is a technical word. In physics, the work done is mathematically equivalent to the energy expended. In a sense, the two words are equivalent since energy refers to the input of a system and work refers to the output. The Hebrew word melaka is also a technical word, and it can legitimately be translated energy as well as work. Let's consider the summary account of creation from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, translating the Hebrew melaka as energy rather than work. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his energy which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his energy which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his energy which God had created and made. This statement is as clear as it could possibly be that God's creative acts were terminated at the end of the six days of creation. Whatever processes that God used in creating and making all of his work, that is, all of his energy, they ceased when God rested on the seventh day. And this fact is exactly what was finally formalized by science in the first law of thermodynamics. Under present economy, energy cannot be created or destroyed. The most significant implication of this fact for the modern philosophers that go under the name of scientists is that it's absolutely impossible to determine anything about creation through a study of the present natural law. This is purely and simply because present processes are not creative in character. Present natural law is a law of conservation. If man wants to know anything at all about creation, the time of the creation, the duration of the creation period, the methods of creation, or anything else, his only source of true information is that of divine revelation. God was there when it happened. We were not there. And there is absolutely nothing in present physical processes that can tell us anything at all about it. Therefore, we're completely limited to what God has seen fit to tell us. And this information is in his written word. The Bible is our sole reference book on the science of creation. Present processes are those of maintenance or providence. 
Nothing is being created, but also nothing is being destroyed. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is upholding all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It's by his power also that the heavens and the earth, which are now, are kept in store, according to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. That's Psalm 119, verses 89 to 91. What scientists call the first law of thermodynamics is simply the conservation principle that God has established to sustain his creation at the end of the creation period. This conservation principle is an extremely significant characteristic of all present processes. It's a scientific fact that nothing is being created or destroyed. But there's another principle that is as important a characteristic of present processes as this first one also. Let's ex now examine that second principle. It is a fact that nothing is being destroyed. But it's also true that with the passage of time, everything becomes less useful. The principle behind this is the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy increase. Scientists today know that there is an unrelenting natural tendency toward disorder and decay. With each energy exchange process that takes place within the dynamics of our universe, some of the energy becomes less available for further useful work. A scientific process can only be sustained by the regular addition of fresh energy from outside the system itself. Whether we have formalized it in our thought processes or not, we all realize that there is a universal tendency toward decay and death. Everything tends to run down, to grow old, to wear out. We all, in one way or another, sense the unrelenting decay principle of the second law of thermodynamics. It is a universal principle, and we cannot escape the effects of it. Yet we subconsciously resent it. It seems hard to reconcile this tendency to the characteristics of a universe that was created by a God of perfection. Yet it is a part of the natural law, and nothing in the universe escapes its effect. However, the presence of the second law of thermodynamics is also described and explained by the Holy Scriptures. This unrelenting principle of decay and death is the curse pronounced by God when sin entered the world through Adam. Genesis chapter 1 tells us of God's creative work as he created and made all things. Notice the statement made at the end of this, this account in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. When God finished creating, he inspected his work, and he pronounced it very good. What a God of perfection pronounces very good is good in the absolute. It is perfect. There was no disorder. There was no principle of decay. There was no death in this world as it was originally created by God. This means that any evidence that we find in the present natural law or in the records of the past as written in the rocks of the earth that indicates disorder, lack of harmony, struggle, decay, and death must be understood as becoming a part of the creation after, not before or during the six days of the creation period. The scriptures declare that this is exactly what happened as a result of the sin of the first man, Adam. God had given Adam dominion over the earth and everything on it. When Adam sinned, a holy God found it necessary to pronounce a curse on both Adam and his dominion. Therefore, we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, Cursed is the earth, the creation, the universe, for thy sake. And from that day on, scripture says, The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. I see that my time is gone for today, so we'll have to wait until our next broadcast to show you the tremendous implications of the first and second laws of thermodynamics on the science of creation. It's so good to greet you once again in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. I hope each of you will give me your undivided attention for the next quarter hour because I have a message of tremendous significance. We're involved in a study that I call the science of creation. In this study, we're considering the technical implications of biblical creationism versus the technical implications of evolutionary uniformitarianism. The conclusion that we will reach is that biblical creationism is the only theory of origins that is acceptable within the framework of modern true science. Let me open today's message by reading first Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 and 11 
And then Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Have you ever considered that this very first verse of the Bible determines whether one is a believer or an infidel? In the beginning, God. Once you reject these first four words, you really can't believe anything else in the Bible. How can one believe a book that begins with error? This, then, is the starting point of faith. In the beginning, God. The evolutionist says, in the beginning, material in some basic form. The choice is between eternal elemental material in some basic original form, shaped by purposeless forces into this great universe, or an omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, beginningless God. We all have to choose as to which of these two alternatives is to be that in which we place our faith. The choice, even on a purely scientific basis, is not as difficult as most people today seem to think it. Creation is a scientific fact. One may say, how are you going to prove that statement? Very simply, the two laws of thermodynamics which we discussed on the last broadcast, prove it for me. We've already considered those two laws and their relationship to Holy Scripture. Now let's look at the tremendous significance these two universal principles have to those who are torn between evolution and creationism. First, let's ask the question, did our universe have a beginning? We've already pointed out that the science of nuclear physics has, in this century, proven that the once postulated law of the eternity of matter is invalid. Matter, or material, is just energy in a special form. Therefore, the material of which our universe is made is governed by the two laws of thermodynamics. What we normally refer to as chemical changes in matter are really just special types of energy exchanges. Remember, our universe is made up of pure energy in many forms, and it functions by continuous energy exchanges. The first law of thermodynamics insists that energy cannot be created or destroyed. Our universe has some fixed total quantity of energy, and this quantity, under present natural law, can never be increased or decreased. No more energy is being created, and none is being destroyed. Since we know that energy does exist, then we can come to the logical conclusion that it must necessarily have been brought into existence, created at some time in the past. Perhaps one says, that doesn't prove anything. If energy is eternal, then we can simply conclude that the energy of which our universe is made has existed since eternity past. It's always been here. No, our universe's energy has not been in existence forever. It cannot have been. Energy exchanges are going on constantly in order to sustain this universe. The second law of thermodynamics insists that energy is constantly being worn out. Each time an energy exchange occurs, a part of that energy is converted into unreusable form. Our universe is slowly dying a heat death. If the energy of which our universe is made has been in existence infinitely long, then this would have already happened. The fact that our universe is still functioning is proof that the energy of which it's made is not infinitely old. There was some time in the finite past when energy did come into existence. There was a time when energy was fully charged. There was a beginning. This beginning had to come about by a process of creation, a process that is not only not operative, but is forbidden by present natural law. This is positive proof that there was a supernatural, and remember, supernatural means beyond the natural, there was a supernatural creation. The Genesis account tells us about just such a supernatural creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11 tells us, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Bible insists that God created our universe in a period of six days, and the scriptural evidence is overwhelming that these creation days are to be understood as literal 24-hour days. With this thought in mind, let's continue along the line of discussion that we've been pursuing. 
Our universe, made up of energy in its many special forms, did come into existence at some time in the finite past. But present natural law, the first law of thermodynamics, does not permit energy to be created. Therefore, energy must necessarily have been created by a process not now present or operating. We can conclude that our universe must have been created before the first law of thermodynamics was instituted. And what does the Genesis account tell us? After six days of creative works, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, because that in it he had rested from all his energy which God created and made. There is no record that God has ever again resumed creative works since the seventh day. God created and formed the universe by creative processes that only he knows. Then he instituted the first law of thermodynamics. Now nothing can be created or destroyed. The principle of uniformity, that principle usually expressed in the words, the present is the key to the past, absolutely cannot be projected back into the six days of creation. It cannot for the very simple reason that the most basic law of our universe was not established until after that time. Therefore, why should we question God when he says that he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is in six days? Since we don't know anything about creative processes, how can we set a time schedule on them? Let's look at an illustration. If we were to buy a charged storage battery and connect it in a circuit that required a year to discharge it, would we go and argue with the dealer when he tells us that it took him only an hour to charge it? We could study our discharge circuit forever and still know absolutely nothing about the dealer's battery charger. Now the principle here is exactly the same. Our world's present natural laws are laws of conservation and decay. They are laws, we might say, of energy discharge. Scientists today can study and have studied these processes by the scientific method. However, study of these laws can never explain how our universe came into existence. A universe can be brought into existence, that is, created, only by laws of creation and integration. There are no such laws presently operating. It is impossible for scientists to study creative processes, so it is impossible for them to know anything about such processes. It is highly presumptive for any human being to make any statement concerning how long it took to create and form a universe. Any such statement from mere man is a statement from ignorance. Creation is a scientific fact. Man, by his scientific method, can study the processes of universe discharge. God, and God only, knows anything about the processes of universe charge. We can only know what he chooses to tell us. Are we going to believe God when he tells us something about his creative works? We have no other information about God's universe charger. He has told us that he created and formed the universe in six literal days. He has given us freedom to either believe him or to disbelieve him. But whether we as individuals believe him or not, God's word, our holy Bible, stands. If one would approach the Bible without previous bias and review those passages dealing with the creation of the earth and its subsequent history, he would readily agree that the apparent implications of these passages are that our world is relatively young. If planet earth has been here for millions or even billions of years, then we are all forced to admit that God has not made this obvious in his revelation. If the planet earth does have a history that extends more than about 10,000 years into the past, then God's word is misleading to the average reader. The two laws of thermodynamics prove that there was a creation and it took place within the finite past. Although we know that creation was not an infinitely long time ago, the two laws of thermodynamics cannot tell us exactly how long ago it happened. But there are a number of very good scientific clocks that can and do tell us that the beginning was not billions or even millions of years ago. There is overwhelming scientific evidence that the beginning was only 8,000 to 10,000 years ago, exactly as the Bible seems to teach. The Bible then, taken in its plain literal sense, teaches that our earth's age is measured in thousands rather than millions or billions of years. Conversely, the commonly and almost universally accepted theories of the secular world, supposedly based on the findings of science, teach that the evolutionary history of the earth 
extends over a time period of four to five billion years. Obviously, there is a vast degree of difference between the apparent teachings of the Bible and the actual teachings of certain secular fields of study that go under the name of science. Do the findings of true science actually support the old earth theories that are so widely believed today? Many of you may be surprised to find out that the answer to this question is emphatically no. There are several very good scientific clocks that soundly refute old earth theories and that insist that the earth's age is at most about 10,000 years. My time is gone for today, so we'll have to wait for the next broadcast to discuss some of these clocks. We'll continue with our study of the science of creation exactly where we leave off today. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. I look forward to this time each day when we can gather together around the Word of God. Today we'll continue our study of the science of creation. The object of this study is to show that biblical creationism is the only technically acceptable explanation of the existence of our universe. Contrary to the idea that creationism is the religious view of origins, it is actually the scientific view. Let me open today's message by reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The creation account makes it clear that the first man, Adam, was created on the sixth creation day. This day immediately preceded the day spoken of in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the seventh day, the day on which present natural law was established to sustain God's finished creation. Now to establish a point, let's go to the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In verse 23 we read, And Jesus himself began to be about thirty years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. From this point, the genealogy of our Lord, through his mother Mary, is given in an unbroken line back through the ages. This can be verified by reading Luke chapter 3, verses 24 through 37. Finally, in conclusion of this genealogy, verse 38 says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. The genealogy of Luke chapter 3 provides a continuous line of ancestry from our Lord back to Adam. Therefore, our Lord's genealogy is directly linked to the creation period. Although it's possible and even probable when we look at other genealogies in Scripture that the Holy Spirit did not mention every individual ancestor of our Lord in this unbroken line, it's still plain that no tremendous periods of time could have passed between any of the names in the genealogical chain. In summary, we must all admit that to an unbiased reader, the Bible seems to teach the following. All things in the physical universe were created and made by God in a period of six days. After this period, all creative activity ceased. Adam is directly linked with the Lord Jesus Christ by a genealogy that does not allow for a passage of time of more than a maximum of about 8,000 years. The date of the creation of Adam, based on scriptural revelation, seems to fall between 4,000 B.C. and 6,000 B.C. If we accept the Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts at face value, as did Bishop Usher, then the date of the creation of Adam is 4004 B.C. However, this figure is subject to a reasonable increase. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that dates from about 250 B.C., inserts approximately 1,000 years more time in the Genesis 11 genealogy and 400 years more time in the Genesis 5 genealogy. Usher's chronology was based on direct descent, although the Hebrew word for begat could refer to grandsons or even more remote descent. However, there is a limit to the increase in time that can be added to Usher's figures. Secular historical geology teaches that the earth is extremely old, something like 4.5 billion years old. Obviously, this kind of age is far beyond the limit that can be placed on Usher's calculations. 
Does the findings of true science actually support the conclusions of historical geology? Before we examine the theories of historical geology and the secular teachings that lead to the conclusion that the earth is extremely old, let's look first at some of these scientific age indicators. It may come as a surprise to some that one of the best clocks we have, one offering powerful testimony to the fact that our earth is young, is that one associated with radiocarbon dating. Information that has come to light as a part of the carbon-14 dating technique points conclusively to the fact that our planet cannot have been subject to the present natural processes for more than 6,000 to 10,000 years. This statement must come as a surprise to some because the carbon-14 dating technique is often pointed to as proving beyond doubt that the Earth has existed for at least 50,000 years. We should examine the carbon-14 dating technique and find out what it really does teach about the age of our Earth. The carbon-14 dating technique was invented by Dr. George Libby in the late 1940s and it immediately caught the attention of those interested in the Earth's history. What is radiocarbon dating? Chemists have known for many years that the major element in the cell structure of all biological material is the element carbon. Now since the turn of the century, physicists have found that carbon can exist in more than one form. These various forms are known technically as isotopes. By far the most common isotope of carbon is that one referred to as carbon-12. Carbon-12 is the stable form of the element. The number 12 refers to the number of major building blocks in the nucleus of the atom. Carbon-12 seems to be perfectly happy to keep all 12 of these building blocks. So far as it is known, carbon-12 is not radioactive. Now another less common isotope of carbon is carbon-14. This heavier isotope has two extra building blocks in the nucleus of the atom and it doesn't seem to be very happy with them. This atom is constantly trying to throw off these extra building blocks out of the nucleus. The nuclear binding force is not sufficient to hold the carbon-14 nucleus together. Therefore, carbon-14 is radioactive. Carbon-12 and carbon-14 behave exactly alike chemically. Therefore, biological organisms cannot tell the difference between the two and biological cell building processes make use of either carbon-12 or carbon-14 just as the two isotopes are encountered. As a result, all living biological organisms, both plant and animal, contain a certain percent of carbon-14. Now the relative amount of carbon-14 when compared to the total carbon in a given specimen is extremely small. But it has been found that every living plant and animal today has exactly the same percentage of carbon-14 when its total carbon content is taken into account. This ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in individual biological organisms faithfully reproduces the ratio that is today present in our universe. Now, we mentioned that carbon-14 is radioactive. Atoms of carbon-14 are constantly throwing the two extra nuclear building blocks away. They come off as radioactive particles, and when this happens, a carbon-14 atom becomes a carbon-12 atom. This takes place at an exponential rate and as a statistical process. The rate of decay is best described by a statistical average that physicists refer to as the half-life of carbon-14. The half-life is the time that it takes for one half of a given sample of carbon-14 to decay to carbon-12. Physicists believe with good experimental evidence that the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,700 years. If carbon-14 is constantly decaying, then why doesn't our Earth run out of it? It's because carbon-14 is constantly being manufactured in the upper layers of the atmosphere by action of the sun on the element nitrogen. Living biological specimens constantly are picking up new carbon-14 for use in cell building. Although carbon-14 constantly is decaying, living things constantly are replacing it with more carbon-14. When a plant or an animal dies, it no longer continues the cell building process. No new carbon is added to a fossil remains. Any carbon-14 in that fossil will decay at the exponential rate that is characteristic for carbon-14. That is, one half of the carbon-14 originally present will decay in the first 5,700 years. One half of the remaining one half will decay in the second 5,700 years, and so on. The carbon-14 dating process requires first the measurement of the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 in a fossil specimen, 
and then the comparison of this ratio to the ratio of the two types of carbon in presently living things. Since all living things are constantly replacing the carbon-14 that decays, and dead things do not, the fossil specimen will always have a lower ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 than the living specimen. The carbon-14 dating technique assumes that the entire difference in the two ratios is due to radioactive decay. Since the rate of decay of carbon-14 is known, it's possible to come up with a number that represents the time that has passed since the fossil specimen died. To both those who work in the field and those who look on from the outside, this appears to be an infallible technique. Carbon-14 dates are arrived at by experimental measurements and by mathematical calculations. On the surface, it seems that here at last is a technique for dating fossils that is entirely within the scientific method, and no one can dispute the results. The carbon-14 date is supposed to be the final word. It's said to provide scientific proof that the plant and animal life of our world extends a great deal more than 10,000 years into the past. But is this true? Is the carbon-14 dating technique completely within the boundaries of the scientific method? Is it based entirely upon experimental measurement, and is it totally independent of philosophy and speculation? The answer is no. Every carbon-14 date depends upon assumptions that are unprovable, and in some cases, most unlikely. But I see my time is almost gone for today. We'll have to reserve our further comment on carbon-14 dating techniques for the next broadcast when we continue with our study of the science of creation. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. We're glad that you've joined us today as we gather together by radio for another message from God's Holy Word. We're involved in a study that I call the science of creation. The object of this study is to show that biblical creationism not only provides a perfectly good scientific explanation for the existence of the universe, but rather it provides the only technically acceptable theory of origins that has ever been advanced. On the last broadcast, I was considering the techniques of radiocarbon dating. I had described how these dating techniques work, and then I'd pointed out that the calculated results of any experiment in this field are controlled by some unprovable and unlikely assumptions. We'll continue with that discussion today. But first, let me prefix my remarks by again reading Paul's warning to Timothy that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Now, the most glaring of these assumptions that control the results of a carbon-14 dating experiment, and the one most likely to be an error, is the assumption that man knows how much carbon-14 was present in fossil specimens at the time of their death. You see, the one who computes a carbon-14 date does not know the initial conditions of his experiment. He must fill in these missing data by an assumption. And his answer, his carbon-14 date, is only as accurate as his assumption. We have no data that were measured earlier than the 20th century as to how much carbon-14 was present in our world in times past. Any assumption made, even though the reasoning behind it may appear valid, is really just that, an assumption. The carbon-14 dating technique equates a lack of carbon-14 to old age. Is old age, that is to say, is a long period for the original carbon-14 to gradually decay into carbon-12, the only possible explanation for a lack of carbon-14 in the fossil specimen. Of course it isn't. Suppose that there was very little carbon-14 present in the Earth's planetary system at the time that the fossil specimen died. If that were the case, then a carbon-14 dating experiment performed at the very moment of death would have yielded an age of the order of 50,000 years. Today, it's a known fact that the quantity of carbon-14 present in our world system is constantly increasing. The ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 is not unchangeable with time as was once believed. The Bible gives a strong reason for believing that there was little, if any, carbon-14 present in the world before the great flood at the time of Noah. 
When Dr. George Libby invented the carbon-14 dating process in the 1940s, he assumed that the carbon-14 cycle of our planet was in equilibrium. Now, what do we mean by these terms carbon-14 cycle and equilibrium? Let's review. The heavy isotope carbon-14 is constantly decaying into the lighter isotope carbon-12 according to statistical laws of radioactive decay. If carbon-14 were not being constantly manufactured out of the element nitrogen, then, given sufficient time, essentially all carbon-14 in our Earth system would eventually disappear. But carbon-14 is being manufactured constantly by action of high-energy radiation of the sun on the element nitrogen. As cosmic rays from the sun strike the nucleus of a nitrogen atom, a pair of nuclear building blocks are dislodged from the nucleus. The result is the formation of a new atom, an atom of unstable carbon-14. The newly manufactured carbon-14 filters down to the surface of the Earth, and it's absorbed in the biological systems of our world. In his initial work in the carbon-14 dating field, Dr. Libby assumed that the quantity of carbon-14 in our Earth had reached a fixed value and did not increase or decrease with the passage of time. This is what's meant by the term equilibrium. Although carbon-14 is constantly decaying, it is also constantly being manufactured. There was a very good reason for the assumption that the carbon-14 cycle is in equilibrium. If the Earth is extremely old, it should be. And of course, it's the opinion of the secular world that our Earth is extremely old. There is a very valid reason for assuming that an old Earth has a fixed quantity of carbon-14 that never changes. Carbon-14 is being constantly manufactured by action of the sun on the, the element nitrogen. Since the sun's radiation is relatively constant in intensity when measured over a long period of time, carbon-14 is manufactured at a linear rate. By this, it is meant that with the passage of any given increment of time, a given quantity of carbon-14 has been produced. That is, there's a linear constant that relates the quantity of carbon-14 produced to the time that has elapsed. However, carbon-14 decays at an exponential rate. The rate of decay is proportional to the quantity of carbon-14 that exists. Therefore, as more carbon-14 is accumulated, the rate of decay increases. Now, if we were to postulate that our Earth at some time in the past had no carbon-14, but that it suddenly became exposed to action of the sun under present conditions, we could expect the following. Carbon-14 would begin to be produced at a constant rate, so the accumulated quantity would begin to increase. Initially, there is very little carbon-14 accumulated, so the decay rate is very slow. The quantity of carbon-14 accumulated then increases, so the decay rate also increases. Eventually, the quantity of carbon-14 accumulated will be such that the decay rate becomes equal to the formation rate. When this happens, there will never be any additional increase in the quantity of carbon-14 that is accumulated. That is the state that's referred to as equilibrium. The rate at which the sun is manufacturing carbon-14 is known today to a fair degree of accuracy. It's also believed that the half-life of carbon-14 is known to a fair degree of accuracy. With these numbers available, it's possible to calculate the time that it would take for our Earth to begin with no carbon-14 and reach a state of carbon-14 equilibrium. This has been done, and the time required is approximately 29,500 years. Of course, if it were assumed that some carbon-14 existed initially, then this time would be shorter. In his initial experiments, Dr. Libby assumed that the carbon-14 cycle had reached equilibrium. This seemed perfectly valid because the assumption is that which would be made in view of the common belief that the Earth is very old. But it is now known that carbon-14 cycle is not in equilibrium. In fact, it can be shown that the Earth has at least 20,000 years to go before the equilibrium condition is reached. The only valid conclusion is that the Earth is less than 10,000 years old. Scripture tells us over and over again that the proof of the existence of God is all around us, clearly visible in the creation. And yet natural man, in rebellion against his creator, refuses to heed this testimony. Man wants to believe that this earth is old and that he is a product of evolution, owing allegiance to no one but himself. The facts that have been discovered by those working in the field of radiocarbon dating, contrary to testifying that the world has great age, actually proves the very opposite. 
In order for one to establish the age of a fossil by the radiocarbon, carbon-14, dating technique, then he must first assume that he knows something about the amount of carbon-14 present at the time the fossil died. There are no measurements available to tell us anything about the amount of radiocarbon present in the environment in past times, so any assumption made about the prehistoric past is, in reality, pure guesswork. In order for one to establish any guess at all as to the amount of carbon-14 existing in nature several thousand years ago, he must first assume that environmental conditions on the earth have remained essentially unchanged over that period of time. Although this assumption may have some validity over the last four to five thousand years, there's a great deal of evidence that such an assumption is invalid beyond that time. First, the Bible specifically denies that environmental conditions have remained unchanged over a period of more than a maximum of six thousand years. The Bible tells us of two great discontinuities in what man calls the natural law. The most recent of these was the great flood at the time of Noah. Preceding that, by not more than 2,000 years, was creation itself, after which God first instituted the natural law. The assumptions made by those in the field of radiocarbon dating about the initial conditions on this planet must then be highly questionable by Bible-believing Christians. The decay rate of carbon-14 is, at present, only about 70% of the formation rate. It can be shown mathematically that it would take only 6,000 to 8,000 years for our Earth to reach its present level of carbon-14 if it had started under conditions where no previously existing carbon-14 was present. The carbon-14 dating technique equates the absence of carbon-14 in a fossil with old age. If carbon-14 were minimal or absent at the time of the death of the fossil due to vastly different environmental conditions in that day, then the day the fossil died, it would be judged to be 30 to 50,000 years old by carbon-14 dating. The Bible does tell us that environmental conditions were vastly different from those we know today before the great flood of Noah. There is reason to believe that very little or perhaps no carbon-14 could have been manufactured by action of the sun on nitrogen before the great flood. Any fossils that died during the flood would then have carbon-14 ages that are much older than their actual age. The fact that our Earth's carbon-14 cycle is not yet in equilibrium is powerful evidence that the Earth is relatively young. The state of the carbon-14 environment during our day places the age of the Earth at 6,000 to 8,000 years. Is not this the very age that the Bible implies? My time is almost gone for today. We'll consider other scientific clocks that point to a young Earth on our next broadcast of the Science of Creation.